everybody um, to our session today, and welcome to SACPA. Um, my name is uh, Crystal Frank. I'm a volunteer um, SACPA board member, and today I'm going to be your moderator. Um, before we start, there are a few housekeeping items I'd like to go over. Um, I'd like to ask everybody to please turn off or at least silence your cell phones. Um, today's session is going to be recorded. Uh, it's going to be broadcast on Shaw TV Sunday at 4.30 as well as uh, an audio copy of today's presentation is going to be placed on our website. So if you want to listen to it later or pass it on to someone else. Uh, SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and we rely heavily on the contributions of our members and our session attendees. Uh, in the middle of each table, you're going to find a wicker basket. Today's lunch is uh, $10. Um, I'll ask that you pay for your lunch by placing your $10 into the basket on the table. And if each table could please um, delegate uh, one individual to go over and count the funds, and a SACPA representative will come by and pick that up from your table. Um, I'd also like to take the time to thank our partners, uh, without whom this all wouldn't be possible. Uh, the University of Lethbridge for their support and distribution of notices. Uh, Country Kitchen Catering for the, the wonderful lunches they provide us. Uh, Shaw TV for broadcasting our sessions and uh, the Lethbridge Media for covering our SACPA events. Uh, the format today, for today's meeting is going to be as follows. Uh, we're going to allow 25 to 30 minutes for um, our speaker to present his topic. Um, we'll break for lunch and resume around 1 p.m. Uh, that'll leave us about half an hour for questions. And we'll finish at 1.30. And now without further delay, I'd like to introduce today's speaker. Um, our topic for today is First Nations Election Act, Will Democracy Be Better Served? Um, to present this to us is Mike Frank. Mike Frank has been the Chief Electoral Officer for the Stony Chiniki First Nation, a Deputy Electoral Officer for the Kainai First Nation, a Deputy Returning Officer for the recent provincial election, and a Policy Advisor for many First Nations governments. Mike is also a member of the Kainai First Nation, as a graduate from the University of Lethbridge. Um, currently, Mike is also a Lethbridge College and Pagan Board of Education instructor. So, uh, Mike, welcome to SACPA, and if we could give him a nice warm applause. Hello, everyone. If I start losing you at the back, please just pop your ear open. So it's good to be at SACPA again. It's um, always nice to see the same wonderful faces that I've had in the community. And just give me a moment here. Let me, I would not want Crystal to cut me off. <laughs> okay, here we go. Recently, I've been uh, a Chief Electoral Officer for a few reserves, and along the way, there's many requirements of how the leadership selection is selected on reserve. It's a very confusing principle, and a lot of the material I'm going to be throwing at you will be tested on, so have your pens ready. Um, what I'd like to do is start with an overview of the Indian Act. I'm not going to go into too much information, because what I'd really like to focus on is this act known as Bill S6. And currently it's at Parliament, or sorry, it'll be in Parliament in the fall. It's at its third reading right now. And that's where the dangers come in. 
and I really call them dangers. I don't want to use such strong language, but the dangers are that what do we know about this? What most people know is four pages on the internet, and that's it. And what I my talk is intended to do is expand on the knowledge base that's out there, and more importantly, sketch out from the Indian Act all the way down to today is where we're going to go. So here we go. What I really like to skim over is that the Indian Act really took place in 1850. And it was an act designed by Canada, at British at the time, for the protection of the Indians in Lower Canada. And it's also an all-encompassing act. It's meant to control daily life. It's not just government, is where I'm going with this. But it's for the protection of Indians in Upper Canada is where it gets its roots. And the property, at this time, it didn't even touch the election system. The act in itself defined the personhood of Indians. It defined who was and who was not Indian. It implemented the laws that were in place to protect Indians from settlers and amongst themselves. But this is where the roots of assimilation were taking place for Indians in, in Canada. Because the legislation was making it clear that remaining an Indian was not an option. In order to become civilized at this time, that the person had to renounce their Indian heritage. They really had to say that you cannot be Indian and you cannot be civilized at the same time. This is stuff that's covered in my intro Native Studies class. So some of these may not be out in the front today, but this is where the Indian Act roots come from. So civilization laws were coming into effect. Um, I'd just like to add that I thought my ancestors were pretty civilized at this time. <laughs> you know, we had government, we had religion, we had language, we had culture, we had customs, we had children. So that's the, the importance that we have to understand too, that the disruption is what I'm really focusing on, of, of, of contact. Assimilation is still the policy, and it's still going on today. And what I'm going to show later on in my speech about the act is that this is just a modern day interpretation of the assimilation notion. So <clears throat> Indians are still wards under the government. We're still legal categories. And we're also that control is still being wrestled over. For example, it's not wrestled from Lethbridge City Council, but 10 kilometers away, it's being wrestled from the local government. So these dynamics are taking place. Back to Indian Affairs, that from 1872 to 1876, it was a really not well-managed department. It used to be under the Department of Agriculture. It used to, now it was the Department of Interior. So it changed many roles along the way. Right? And at this time, there was no input from Aboriginals, meaning First Nation, Métis, Inuit people, about how this took place. The federal government says, your wards will handle the affairs. Don't worry about it. So now the Indian Act comes into place in about 1876. And what is really defining here is how the allocation of reserve lands are taking place, the definition of Indian status, and also the authority being granted from the Act to the government for those Aboriginal people. The results were is that the municipal style of government is now being imposed on the government for First Nations. This was a complete disruption of the traditional knowledge sets 
For example, my grandmother's brother, the late Stephen Fox, was the last hereditary chief of the Kainai. With him gone, there's been no legal mechanism under the Indian Act to have the same traditional knowledge base ongoing. We have our clan systems, we have our traditional groups of elders, but no one is clearly defined in the Indian Act. Right? This is, that's one of the things it did. It did away with the traditional leadership. This is through the enfranchisement notion. And you could become civilized if you gave up your indigenous status. That's the enfranchisement. At this time, the Indian Act was meant to be a stopgap. Right? The goal was once these native peoples on the reserve and off reserve were absorbed into Canadian uh, society, the act would, would not be necessary anymore. So assimilation was the goal, right? The, even in contemporary schools and elementary schools, it designed the melting pot notion. However, First Nation peoples were not absorbed. The act still remains in effect because of the civilization of the First Nations people. And this is where we really got to please hold on to that notion. I'm just going to run through this. This is the statushood. This defines Indianhood. Status, non-status, all these uh, legal confusing terms. 6-1 Indian is what I am. Status Indian. very important for my grandmother, Dr. Helen Manyfingers, to be here, mom and the family. So here we go. Here's one of the examples I'd like to show for statushood. And this is meant for defining Indian status versus non-Indian status. Very simple. I'm not going to even read it. But what it means is that there's categories of status, non-status. I'm a 6-1 Indian, according to the Indian. My son, Orion, is a 6-2 Indian. If he has grandchildren, they won't be status Indians. They'll have Indian blood. So no legal requirement. So this is known as what I call the second generation cutoff. That the rights that I have will be transferred to our son. And if he does not marry another status Indian, those rights are lost under the Indian Act. That's the enfranchisement and that's the assimilation taking place. Um, what I like here is that the Indian status from two generations, the legal status is what I'm emphasizing, not the bloodline. The blood status is not measured by bloodline. So back to the enfranchisement notion is that you must show strong moral character, that you must show an excellent education, and you must give up your status as a native person to become a civilized Canadian citizen. That's what was really going on. Okay, so status Indians like myself are, are, are recorded and documented in Ottawa. Non-status, not registered, not eligible for services. There's a whole bunch of stereotypes I won't get into. However, the federal government's goal was to eliminate the category of status Indian and end the responsibility 
to and for all Native people. This act that I will be discussing is built on this notion. Under the Indian Act, the Indian Act has its own separate uh, amendment notions of how and where and basically a how-to guide of how to conduct elections, just like most statutes. They're called the Indian Ban Regulations. And I'm just spending a little time on this one. The Indian Act elections, there's three ways. Refer to political office, just like mayor and alderman now council. But what we're doing here is that the chief and council are elected members. The chief, you could run for the office of chief on reserve, and you could both run for the office of councilor on reserve. You could do it under the Indian Act custom regulations. You could do it under the Indian Act itself. There's certain, there's only three self-governing First Nations in BC that do this. However, there's about 240 hold under the Indian Act, and the 341 hold their own custom or other actors. That way, for example, the Kainai First Nation, we have our own election code. We wrote it, we carry it out, we have our elections in the fall, um, we ran them before, and you think, okay, well, it's just code. What's the big deal? The big deal is that the First Nations who hold their election do it under the auspice of the Indian Act. The Indian Act governs everything on reserve. It wasn't until that long ago, we must remember, that you couldn't leave the reserve without a pass from the Indian agent. Literally, you could not come to Lethbridge. And those you may have seen, well, dad told it, grandma told it, grandma told it. You know, very controlling. Okay, So this act still carries out the same controlling fashion. The custom code, which I'd really like to focus on, was meant to get away from the Indian Act strict requirements. So Kainai said, we're gonna draft our own legislation that'll be in consultation with the people, we're gonna check it, and we can amend it. However, it's still under the umbrella of the Indian Act. That, the custom code is where I really focus on, it's the rules for chief and council of how to operate government. They vary under the custom code is that when a dispute arises, which elections do have, is that it must be resolved in related to the according conditions of the act itself. For example, I was in federal court with the recent uh, Stoney, and our costs to date are over a million. So, and this is about an act that should be carried out under the Indian Act. The costs are outrageous. Uh, the evidence given there, it causes turmoil, and government is is weakened, right? Also at the same time, the new First Nations Election Act is really going to focus on how the contestants are taking place on cover that right? So self-governing. Okay, and this is where we begin the meat and potatoes of where we're going. The First Nations Election Act came into effect about two, two and a half years ago. And it was designed because people on reserve and outside communities were saying, what's going on? I just gave an example, a million dollar legal fee for an election of 800 people. Okay. So the Indian Act was antiquated. We saw its roots in 1876. It's, we're still carrying those provisions out. We've got to modify and get with the times. 
The specific one that was, was stated was that the two-year term of office was not long enough. The Indian Act states a chief or council can only run for two years. No longer, no shorter. The alternatives people have suggested were saying that it's antiquated, paternalistic, it's unstructured, there's a mail-in ballot system, it's open to abuse, it's ineffective, the election appeal itself, and also it doesn't list the defined spent, the penalties and offenses. As an electoral officer, I operated with quite a bit of freedom and quite a bit of autonomy. And if I had abused that process, there's really no provisions for getting rid of me. Right? So that transfer of title, because there was no set penalties on place. So to get around that, you know, here's the intelligence of the First Nations saying, okay, Mike, we need you. You've been recommended by your people. We know your family. Your supervisor, uh, Professor Leroy Little Bear, recommended you. You were a police officer before. We're trusting you with our election. Okay. So that's that's what's really going on. The interview lasted a, a whole day. The difference in the Indian Act provisions here, this is literally from the website, those four pages I mentioned before. It would provide a longer term of office, a robust process for the nomination of candidates, the common election day, meaning all reserves in Canada may have one election on the same day for all 146 reserves. I mean, that's a lot of money. The penalties for offenses and the removal of the minister in the role of the election. Wait a second. This is where I have some differences with this. They built this act up. They put this infrastructure in place, and now they want to remove themselves from it with an arbitrary pen stroke. The four-year term notion. The nominations that are taking place is that for two years of government to handle a $120 million budget per year is not adequate enough. You barely get anything done in long term. So that's the rationale behind it, saying, let's extend two years under the Indy Act to four years. Uh, the, the nomination process, but this is where I'd really like to focus on. I'm going to spend some more time on here. For example, under the new First Nation Election Act, if a politician is convicted of a crime, okay, meaning convicted of an indictable offense, you know, two years and over of, of a prison sentence, and their imprisonment is for more than 30 days, they can lose office. However, the Indian Act on the same side just requires conviction. The prison sentence is not even an issue. Trouble is that the chief or council member involved with the law, involved with the system, you could still hold the office as long as your prison term was not longer than 30 days. So you would have an elected official speaking on behalf of you with a prison record and still hold office by legal means, right? and this act would support that, one of the dangers. The contested elections, often elections, there's a me mechanism for contestants, and what I'd really like to focus on here is how this act is, is doing it. The harm is, say for example, I'm the chief electoral officer and I miscounted the ballot. Okay. Could happen, I counted 1,500 paper ballots that day, all night, it, it does happen. What it does is instead of individuals who complain about the process going to the minister 
They go to the courts. So we're seeing the exclusion of the minister who built the whole process. And now all of a sudden, you wash your hands of it. But they will go to the courts. The costs, this is where I'm going to insert the cost notion. The costs of going to court, I mean, you heard a million dollars. No one can afford that on their own. This act is designed that the fiduciary obligation, the financial obligation by the Minister of Indian Affairs is withdrawn. Under here, First Nations are expected to pay for their own election process. Currently, the blood tribe, the election process out there would cost just short of $100,000, like the actual process itself. The ballots, the staff, the day, the tabulators, the electronic mechanisms. And that's for a reserve of 12,000 people. Smaller reserves do exist. You know, we're talking even up to 40-ish, all the way up to where we are now. And so the cost, that's another cost to incur. Wait a second, we already have these social issues to face. You know, Indian residential school, poverty, rampant suicide rates, isolation, lack of funding, infrastructure. And now you expect us to pay for our own elections, which you built. That's the rationale behind it. To get around this right, is that there's the opt-in notion of the First Nation Elections Act. The bill is deemed to be voluntarily, but it can be imposed by the minister. There's a paradox going on here. Thank God I'm a philosophy major. The bill is voluntarily. So however, to get into the bill, an existing chief and council would have a band council resolution which is like a, a simple motion. And now their entire election code changed. The danger to this is that nobody was consulted. Nobody knew about it. If I was a chief or a counselor and I saw this act and I liked it, I would just motion, motion to carry the act, done. But I didn't have to talk to anyone. I didn't have to explain what I'm getting into because if I'm in office, it supports me being in office. It carries that through. It doesn't hold me accountable. And that's what I put on here, the highlights, is that there's no provision. There's no legal provisions for this act and the consultation notion to take place. Like it's not mandatory. It's just good practice. The removal from the act, that the First Nation took this, and the minister imposed it, so they must present their own community code. They must have the act. I'll just run through these quickly, these seven provisions. Is that there's an amendment process. The code must be approved by a majority of votes in a secret ballot for the existing chief and council. The code is published on the First Nations website. Kind of hard to do if you don't have um, internet access, like some northern communities. It's effective of the date. And Lastly, number seven, the Community Election Code is not subject to the Statutory Instruments Act. These are harmful processes where it's very challenging to understand them. And what I'm arguing for is the average person at the grassroots level, could you understand this? This is what my master's is in, and I barely understand it. And I've spoken to about 50 people across Canada and very few people knew about it. We talked to people about BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, one man knew about it. Few in Ontario, 
a band in Nova Scotia supported it, and it's now it affects every everyone on reserve across Canada. No consultation is what it means. So the common election day, um, what I really focus on here is the removal of the minister in the in the role of election. That they can it arbitrarily removes themselves and washes their hands of it after a system they built over 125 years. So this means that the Indian Act is not going to change. There's a lot of discussion, and there's a private member's bill currently saying, let's scrap the Indian Act. Well, you know, Gandhi said you should not tear down one system of government without having something else in its place. So you could tear the Indian Act down, but what do you have in its place? That's the harm. So my view is that the federal government will say it's voluntary, and there's no need for citizens' approval. The status Indians on there, it's, it's voluntary, don't worry about it. But it alters the scope, because the minister can impose it. The corrupt act notion, I mentioned an example of a corrupt act, counting ballots, for example. They're not defined, it's arbitrary. It's up to the minister to hold this in check. And then rule. That's another danger. But it also sets a precedent because a lot of the Aboriginal people today are moving off reserve. Jobs, housing, social conditions. But it alters the past where I come from. It's a really dangerous piece of legislation, Bill S6, because it it allows the federal government, the chief and council, the First Nation government provincial government and the municipal government have a lot of say for a select group of people. So, and I mean municipal by, I live in Lethbridge, I know Jeff, I know a lot of the council members, and we're still all impacted by this because we live in Lethbridge. These are the consultation process, that, the dialogue that needs to be going. So, what I'd like to do is end a little bit early because there may be a lot more questions. And I'm really wanting to stress that my talk was meant to inform, be an advocate for good governance, and also along the way, show people that the harms that have taken place on reserve for Aboriginal people throughout Canada, and even up to today, that as this act continues, and you're going to see a lot of emphasis in the fall about it, that if the federal government can impose an act without adequate consultation, this is where we have to be cautious, and we have to hold our members in check. So thank you for your time, and I'll be happy to take more questions later on in the break.